Well, the race to vaccinate has hit the express lane in Connecticut. And frankly, we're going to open it up to everybody eligible, 16 and above. I'm just real happy setting an example and uh, get my life out of neutral again. Heartbeat out move to uh, Connecticut. You're, you're anxious to get vaccinated? Yes. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Welcome into The Debrief. I'm your host, Adam Cooperstein, in for David Ushery. Connecticut is the envy of the tri-state when it comes to the COVID vaccine. Starting April 5th, everyone, 16 and up, will become eligible to book appointments. That's nearly a month before the target date set forth by the Biden administration. So what is Connecticut doing that New York and New Jersey aren't? Today on The Debrief, we'll find out what's behind Connecticut's faster vaccination pace, what others could learn from their approach, and what makes it controversial. And now let's welcome in Jason Schwartz from the Yale School of Public Health, also a member of Governor Lamont's COVID vaccine advisory group. And Jason, thank you so much for the time. So we can try to understand the success story of Connecticut's vaccine rollout. I want to start with the idea of all adults becoming eligible starting April 5th. Big headline. It's the envy of New York and New Jersey. And yet I wonder with supply increasing for everyone in recent weeks and expecting more supply coming in the next few weeks, Connecticut's not getting more than other states. They're getting their fair share. How is Connecticut able to do this when neighboring states and most of the country cannot make everybody eligible? Yeah, that's right. And it's, and it's good to be with you. Connecticut is getting the share of vaccines that matches its share of the nation's population of adults. Each state is getting its own weekly allocation based on, on its size. So Connecticut has had a, a pretty successful run with the vaccination program over these past several months. And it has been a way of trying to balance the coordination required for an unprecedented vaccination effort, the likes of which we haven't seen really in the history of public health, balancing the need for both flexibility to recognize the, the challenges that this rollout is creating without avoiding a free-for-all at one extreme or a overly restrictive approach at the other. So Connecticut has tried to find that middle ground, working with the healthcare systems, working with the health departments, coordinating the effort, building in the, the flexibility needed to make this vaccination effort move as quickly and as rapidly as we all wanted to do. And so far, the results have been positive, and that's led to the state being able to rapidly move through the age groups. And, and as you noted within a few weeks to really make it open season for everyone uh, in the adult population for whom these vaccines are authorized. And we should point out that Governor Lamont has said that even with eligibility for all adults starting April 5th, it could take a while before all adults actually have access to getting those shots because of the high demand and still a relatively limited supply. Yes, that's right. The number of doses that Connecticut gets each week is roughly around 140,000. It's an anticipated to increase to about 200,000 in terms of new first doses. And that final group, that April 5th group that will open up to everyone over the age of 16 is a lot larger than that. So it will take several weeks to uh, match those individuals who are eager to get the vaccine as soon as they can with appointments uh, available to get those vaccines started. So it will be, it will continue certainly throughout the month of April, but we're now at, at a path right now where we can see supply being adequate to meet everyone who's available. And that's a very exciting moment, given all that we've been through over the last year. 
And Jason, even now, the new group that's eligible in Connecticut, 45 and up, uh, is much younger than the age eligibility for the neighboring states of New York and New Jersey, where you have to be 60 plus or a certain type of job, whether you're an essential worker or comorbidity that makes you vulnerable to the disease. What is different about the Connecticut rollout when it comes to eligibility at its core? You know, Connecticut had focused on age as the primary criterion for which a vaccine eligibility will be determined. That, like most states, Connecticut started with healthcare workers and healthcare personnel and long-term care facilities in the very first weeks of the vaccination program back in December and January. But from that point forward, Connecticut focused on age as the gateway for how vaccine eligibility would be expanded. And it was because of the fact that when we look at the most severe outcomes, the hospitalizations, and especially the deaths that are caused by COVID-19 age by far is the greatest predictor of those severe outcomes. And those are the outcomes we need to prevent in order for this pandemic to end. So uh, the numbers that Connecticut has been noting, that if we look at the 55 and above population, for example, 96% of deaths caused by COVID-19 occur in those individuals over the age of 55. And that's been the group over these past uh, several weeks that Connecticut's been focusing on and the older groups even before then. So if we focus on age and we rapidly vaccinate large numbers of our oldest populations and then our older populations and now 45 and above, we capture the vast majority of the deaths that this, this pandemic causes. So that's been the rationale. That's been the strategy. It's been different than other states, but it's been a way that's allowed us to move very, very quickly and really be in the top three or four states in terms of the number of individuals who have received at least one dose and now have been fully vaccinated. We've seen other countries outside of the U.S. use a similar age bracket approach with success in the U.K., in Israel. And I wonder, is there a trade-off that you have to make, whether it's equity or frontline workers, when you're just going to simply approach this mostly by age? There is, because we know that there are certainly younger individuals, individuals under the age of 45, for example, who are in those frontline uh, occupations that have been exposed and continue to be exposed to increased risk. We know that there are younger individuals who have the medical uh, comorbidities, those high-risk medical conditions that place them with higher risk. And the trade-off is that this approach that has focused principally on age, and I should note that educators and child care providers have, have been prioritized separate from the age-based criteria, but otherwise, this has meant that some of those younger individuals in the high-risk occupations with high-risk medical conditions have had to wait uh, a few more weeks than they otherwise might. That's been the balancing act. And thankfully, that period of time is, is pretty compressed thanks to the pace of the vaccination rollout, thanks to the increase in supply. But it has been a way of trying to understand the best way to implement this vaccination program to facilitate rapid vaccination, to avoid so many of the challenges that states have encountered when trying to define a particular list of high-risk medical conditions conditions or define the exact list of occupations and then verify and confirm and document that, that has proven to be incredibly difficult, more than the science can handle really at this point, and more than many states have been able to handle operationally. So this was the compromise approach that has, has intended to capture the vast majority of the individuals with high-risk medical conditions are in these older age groups. And that's been one way to think about this consideration, but there definitely are trade-offs in this approach and in any approach to how we've allocated vaccines in Connecticut and nationwide. We noticed that many of the states at the top of the list in efficiency of the vaccine rollout, highest percentage of adults at this point vaccinated are some of the smaller states in the U.S. Is there an advantage, just an inherent advantage to being a relatively small state, certainly Connecticut compared to New York or New Jersey? 
I think there might be. I think so much of, of what has helped states that have done comparatively better with the vaccine rollout do better have been the, the partnerships between the state Department of Public Health, local departments of public health and the healthcare systems, the healthcare providers in a given state. That partnership, that communication, that coordination really has been, I think, a, a linchpin of the success in Connecticut. And I suspect if you look at other states that are performing a bit better than others, I bet you would see similar stories. So I think that is a, a structural advantage here in Connecticut. There's only a few a dominant healthcare systems that work regularly and actively with the state, a limited number of large cities to coordinate with, and even the structural features in the way that Connecticut doesn't have the kind of county government structures that many states in the country have had, in which there's another layer of, of government between the vaccine doses becoming available to a state and the vaccines getting to the places where they're ultimately administered. So I do think some of those features have worked to Connecticut's advantage, as well as just the spirit of collaboration and that balance between rigidity and laxity. Uh, with respect to how the state has structured the program and partnered with all of the sites where the vaccines are actually being delivered. Jason, it's still early, but the, the proof of this execution being proper is in the hospitals when it comes to serious illness. What are you hearing? What are you seeing when it comes to in the last month, in the last few weeks, the changes of who is getting hospitalized with COVID-19 in Connecticut? We're seeing, you know, really uh, encouraging data with respect to both hospitalizations and death, that th those numbers have been either flatlined or lower and increasingly coming down over these past recent weeks. And the positivity rate as well has been under 3% here in Connecticut on average in recent weeks. Still needs to be lower. We still need to have fewer cases. There's still work to be done as more individuals get vaccinated and we're, and we're continuing to be cautious in terms of the kinds of, of, of other precautions we take. But the hospitalization and death data, that will really be the best indicator of where we are. And those numbers are remarkably encouraging. We look at our long-term care facilities, for example, which, you know, those groups have now been fully vaccinated uh, for some time through that early vaccination program. And the story of hospitalizations and deaths in those settings in Connecticut and around the country is remarkable. It's such a testament to the, the effect these vaccines can have in those communities who are vaccinated. And I think we'll see those sorts of trends that we're already seeing in our long-term care facilities. We'll see them even more apparently across the population now as the large numbers and the overwhelming majority of our of our senior citizens here in Connecticut and elsewhere are now vaccinated. We're going to continue to see those declines in hospitalizations and deaths. And that will be the cue for when we know we can exhale a bit and begin to relax all of those other public health precautions. And we all look forward to that. Jason, thanks so much for the time. We appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And now we're pleased to be joined by the mayor of Stanford, Connecticut, David Martin. Thank you so much, Mayor. I appreciate the time. And I know it's a busy time for all of us as we're in this race to vaccinate. Let's start with what you think Connecticut as a state is doing well that puts Connecticut at the top of the pack when it comes to efficiency in the vaccine rollout in America. Well, I thank you for having me. And, you know, I do ponder that question. Why is it that Connecticut is doing so well? I would tell you it is the smart leadership on the behalf of the governor and his staff that has really helped this. They've taken a very proactive approach as opposed to a reactive approach. Now, that doesn't mean here in the city of Stamford, we agree with every decision and we have our challenges. But overall, it's, it's working very well. I would add that when I look at the states that are actually doing a little bit better, than Connecticut in terms of getting first shots out there. They're in states like North Dakota, South Dakota, Arizona, Alaska. They are low-density states that do not have diverse populations. So as well as Connecticut is doing, what I'm going to say is we're actually 
doing even better when you look at how diverse the state is and the population densities in our major cities. We're doing quite well. And since Stanford is one of the state's most diverse cities, let's go on that note for a moment, because this age-based bracket approach, which is different than certainly the neighboring states of New York and New Jersey, is there a trade-off there when it comes to equity in the rollout? Um, I would say, yes, there is a trade-off. And I understand what's going into the decision, but I haven't seen the actual calculations and the estimations and everything like that. But the trade-off is that there are clearly individuals who are less than 45 or less than 55 who have higher levels of vulnerability to this disease. And they feel, well, gee, I'm the one who is most vulnerable. Shouldn't I get top of the list? And that's that's absolutely understandable. And most states have gone that approach. The challenge on the other side is that, well, if you say smoking is one of the risk factors, and if you're a smoker, you get to get a vaccine, well, suddenly everybody's a smoker. Um, So how do you police that? Is it with doctor's notes? Is it active prescriptions? Is it just we take your word for it? And I think that's the trade-off that um, the state of Connecticut and the governor's staff made that decision. We're going to go a little bit differently. We can go much faster and get to more people more quickly, including those who may have those comorbidities by going by a straight age-based approach. And, you know, there's not just a limit on vaccine, there's a limit on vaccinators and the staff that associated with making certain that this is done right, that it is done safely, and then we get to everybody. And I think that's the trade-off that they made. When some other governors outside of Connecticut have been asked about making all adults eligible, even by May 1st, when President Biden outlined as a target date, there's been some concern that, oh, I don't know if it's possible with the supply that we have and the demand. It's just too many people too soon. Do you have concerns about April 5th in Stanford when everyone can become eligible across the state? The one of the challenges and, and listen, I I. Hey, I'm a mayor. I am a political figure, but I can also be cynical about politicians just like everybody else. And I haven't seen it in Connecticut with the governor or the other major cities that that I speak to that I have confidence in. But I've seen it in other states and in other mayors across the country. Oh, everyone's everyone's available. Everybody can get it, but nobody can get it because we don't have any. The idea that you open it up to everybody, but you don't have the vaccine or you don't have the systems in place to get the vaccine administered leaves you nowhere. And the uh, political figures saying, oh, yeah, we can have it everywhere. We can have it everywhere. But you can't. So I don't know if that's answered your question or not, but that's sort of the yin and the yang. I believe that if the vaccines are there. This is the right thing to do. And to some degree, it's connected to the equity question that you mentioned previously. I think the governor is saying to us, hey, if you can clearly distinguish individuals who have severe comorbidities, you might want to move them, reserve a few extra spots for them, and then let everybody else come in. But I can say that I think they're projecting it on how much total vaccine will be available. Here in the city of Stamford, we're set to ramp up. So 
um, and I'll get into a little bit of the, of the details here, if that's all right. We've got really two major vaccinators in Stanford. One is uh, federally qualified healthcare, which is CHC, which is done about, um, as of last week, I think they'd done about close to 30,000 vaccines in the city of Stanford, most of them coming from their drive-through site that we have in the center of the city, the area we call Bull's Head. But they also have their own clinic that they run in Stanford that's doing it. And then the larger vaccinator is our collaboration partnership with the local hospital, Stanford Health, which is done somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000. Now, we could have done a lot more if we had more vaccine. Um, in fact, we were set to open up another high capacity site. We were ready to go three weeks ago. Um, we just opened it Monday uh, because we didn't have the vaccine. And if we didn't have the vaccine, what's the point of opening the site? So they're starting out about 3,500 a week. We'll open that up to 7,000 a week here within a couple of weeks as we get the kinks worked out and all that sort of stuff. So we'll be at the range of about 20 to 25,000 vaccinations capacity in the city of Stanford here within two or three weeks. And we can ramp it up to closer to 35,000 provided the vaccine. And so they've made a judgment that they're going to open it up to these larger age, age groups. What I am assuming is that they have reasonable assurance that the vaccine will be there. And I got to tell you, the rule books for how to deal with coronavirus have changed from day one to day two to day three, and it's happening again with vaccinations. And I'm I'm upset about that like everybody else, but that's the facts of life. And we're trying to get more done as soon as possible. And if they have a reasonable projection that the vaccine will be there, then to open up those age groups so that people can get their vaccination appointments. And then we know that, okay, you're open that up. I guess we're ready to open up our next site so that we can up increase our capacity. They got to send those signals and we have to have some confidence that those signals are the right ones and that they're going to have the vaccine. You've put in a lot of work clearly to improve access in Stanford to make the process simpler for people when there is more supply. So this isn't for right now, but down the road, there's going to be more supply. That is clear from these manufacturers from the federal government. Is there anything you'd like to see change to break some of the barriers, whether it's technology or booking appointments, where some of the communities that have been disproportionately hit by COVID have just a harder time with the system as it is now? Well, there's a lot of different pieces to that, and I'm not certain that in our time here that, A, I will remember all the pieces, even though I've probably dealt with most of them. Uh, but let's deal with one of those things that's about how do we make this simpler for more people. And one of the issues right now is that getting a vaccination appointment, you go to Stanford Health to get a vaccination with the hospital that we're doing in conjunction with them. You go to CHC on a telephone number to get them. Yale New Haven has their uh, vaccine sign-up list. Hartford Health has theirs. There's VAMS. There's CBS. There's Walgreens. I mean, essentially, you have to become an expert at how to find vaccine appointment availability. And the state is working now to try to consolidate that into a single site. Think of it as almost like a kayak site. We can go to one place and just in, like in kayak, you can find out what the hotels are. You can find out what the flights are. And you may or not book it on kayak, but nonetheless, you find it at one single place. Well, the same thing here. Can we go to one single place to find 
Who's got a vaccine appointment available? Where is it? When is it? Those sorts of things. That's one way in which we make it simpler that I know the state is working on. I've had conversations. We were beginning to take that on with the city of Stanford, but let the state do that because I think they're in a better position to make that happen. A different issue is the evolution of the sites themselves. I'm a very big believer that we should be running as many high capacity sites as we can in this state right now, rather than everybody gets a little bit and it's hard to follow the rules and it's hard to get appointments because it's confusing. And some people might be, I'll I'll use the word cheating a little bit on who's eligible and more vaccine doses are lost because they have some left over at the end of the day. I believe that right now in our cycle, we should be pushing high capacity sites. That's what we're doing in Stanford. And that's part of the reason I believe that Stanford has had a higher percentage of its people get first doses than any other major city in Connecticut that has a diverse population like we do. We're pushing those high capacity sites where we can get more done faster, more clarity and more uh, singular focus on rules. But once most of the population is vaccinated, those high capacity sites won't make any sense. Why would we have a site that's capable of doing 1,500 a day if there aren't 1,500 people a day signing up? So I think this will evolve, and this will evolve more into the CDSs and the Walgreens of the world, which will handle those vaccines. So it's going to evolve, and I don't know how fast it will evolve, but I suspect that we will be closing down those high-capacity sites when we get a very high proportion of the population inoculated. Oh, but wait, to your question, there are many people that will not go to Stanford Hospital. And there are some people that, gee, they don't have a car to drive to a drive through site. And it may be just a simple resistance to going to one of those high capacity sites, or it could be, I'm not going until my friends or family, or I don't know how to wait. There's a thousand different barriers, and we want to get rid of those barriers. And at Stanford Hospital, they, in fact, are running no barriers times, four days a week, They work with various outreach groups that typically reach into the minority communities. And whether it's Building One Community, which is the leading organization to deal with the immigrant community, or whether it's the NAACP, or whether it's the faith community, they're reaching out and saying, as many of your constituencies that meet the age cutoff, we're going to reserve some specifically for you. Oh, but wait, there's more. We're going out and we are running clinics in specific buildings. We've actually gone to Stanford Green and Pilgrim Towers and Willard Manor and Marshall Commons and the Atlantic and Belt. I mean, lots of different buildings where we have a high senior population, particularly in lower socioeconomic status areas. And we go directly to the building and people come out that may not have come to the hospital or know how to sign up for the vaccine. So we're reaching out to them and we're bringing it to them and and we're letting them have walk-ups. If they don't know how to get a registration ahead of time, we'll do walk-ups. So we're reaching out not only with the organizations and calling and trying to bring them to our high capacity sites, we are also actually going to them with the vaccine. And even just this week, we talked about going mobile which is we'll drive the mobile van and to some location, one of our parks, we'll put out a reverse 911 call. If you don't have the vaccine yet, come down here between one and four. Now we 
We can't do that when it's raining. We can't do that when it's 32 degrees. So we're waiting for it to come up a little bit in spring. We are also talking to some of our food stores about doing a vaccination program for their employees. Again, we go mobile and we drive up and their employees come out. Of course, anybody else that happens to be at the food store that day, because that's another community at risk. And we all want, if you're, I'm sorry, I buy groceries. I don't know about you. I want to make certain that not only am I vaccinated, I want everybody in the grocery store vaccinated. And the employers want their employees vaccinated. So we're doing all of those things. And the last but not least is that these outreaches, we are doing it with community leaders. I've got pictures of the head of the faith community taking their shots. I've got pictures of our elected representatives, whether they be black, brown, or white, taking their shots. And of course, mine. We're trying to send that. You can trust that this is good. We, our leaders are taking it, both black, white, and brown. And we're going to do it where you are. We're doing everything we can to make it simpler and easier and give more people the confidence that it's going to work. I think there's a town hall meeting we're having tonight to answer questions, particularly for those of the lower socioeconomic that still have doubts, still have questions about this. And they heard something about something happened in Europe with AstraZeneca. What does that mean for me, et cetera? Uh, you got me it's going. Complex. <laughs> it, it, it's extremely complex. That's the truth. And we appreciate you making some sense of it all and for all your hard work as well. Mayor Martin, thanks for the time. Yes, I'll just leave you with this. There are, you know, from the standard marketing management, there are segments of people and you have different segments of the population that listen to your program, listen to other programs. We recognize we need to get all segments, but you gotta do what that segment will work the best. And that's what we're doing. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. And thanks to our production team, Melissa Mack, Darren Price, and Ben Berkowitz. I'm your host, Adam Cooperstein in for David Ushery. We'll check back with you next time on The Debrief. Debrief.